Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Matthew 7, I'm sorry, it was Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Matthew 7, 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's a hard back um, black Christian Center Bible in the pew in front of you. If you go ahead and grab that and turn to page 860, you'll find Matthew chapter 7. When we say verses 1 through 6, chapter 7 is the big number, and 1 through 6 are the small verse numbers. We will look at these six verses this morning. Just a reminder as we are turning to Matthew 7, 1 through 6, this is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, maybe the end, the third of three chapters, 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus' main point in the sermon is pursue surpassing righteousness so that you may enter the kingdom of God. That's his point. He wants people to pursue surpassing righteousness in order that they might enter the kingdom of God because the true Christian are those who pursue such surpassing righteousness. And so he's been defining it as the internal, not the external, not doing it to show off in front of others for others' sake, but because God sees you. And it's a, um, it's a life where you're not thinking about the treasures of earth, but the treasures of heaven. And you're not dominated by anxiety and the worries of this world, but you're trusting that God provides your needs as you spend your life for Him. Those are some of the things we've talked about in the past. And now Jesus is moving here to chapter 7 as He continues His profile of what surpassing righteousness looks like. Hear God's Word. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your eye. Hypocrite. First, Take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May His word, the word of Christ, dwell richly among us. Father, we ask now that this word would dwell richly among us, that the beauty and majesty of Christ seen in this passage would give us rock for our feet to stand on and light for our path to walk in. We pray that you would show us your glory here, that you would rebuke us, correct us, teach us, and train us for righteousness so that we may be men and women competent and equipped for every good work, every situation you're going to place us in for the rest of our lives. This cannot happen apart from your Holy Spirit, and so we ask now that your almighty Holy Spirit would powerfully work in us, soften our hearts, Lord. Don't leave us to ourselves and our own efforts, or else we will certainly fail. Help us, we pray. Speak to us now, Father. We, your children, are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps the most famous verse in America today... It's no longer John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. The the most quoted and popular verse today is probably Matthew 7.1, judge not lest ye be judged. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. I remember being tempted to get angry at God in college. I was In a study, I was in a room where a bunch of different students were studying, and I happened to see one of my friends um, and and another one of his friends, who wasn't my friend, get together, and they started sharing, they started um, cheating off of each other's homework. I guess somehow they got someone else's homework, and they were using it to cheat together. And so I saw it, and then I just started praying immediately, like, oh, why did I see that? Now I have to say something. I wish I didn't see it, because then I wouldn't have to say anything. But now that I saw it, I have to, see, I have to say something, and I'm actually getting mad at God, like, Lord, why'd you let me see that? You knew that if I turned that way and I'd see it, and now you want me to love my neighbor as myself, which means I need to say something and speak the truth in love, and so I'm like having this argument with God, 
in my head and thinking, oh, Lord, why did you let me see that? I wish I didn't see it because now I have to say something because I know you want me to say something and I know you're behind this. So fine, I'll go say something. So I went up to say something to them and um, they were not resistant at the same time they weren't receptive either. <laughs> they were just listening to what I said and they just waited until I was done talking. And I, 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 don't, I didn't want to see if they were going to continue. I think I just turned around and made sure I didn't see their reaction anymore. Do you ever... Do you ever feel that way where, you're, where you see something wrong with someone and you feel a responsibility, but you don't know if you should say something or not? We all, ha- we, all, we all have opinions and observations. You have opinions about people. You observe life. You can't not observe life because you're human, and God made you to observe things, and He made you a person of moral judgment. And so you see things, and you can't help but have an opinion and a judgment on something. So, so and, and so we want to be helpful to these, these people. Sometimes our observations are really helpful and would really serve them well. But how do we help people and how do we correct them without being judgmental? I mean, I, I, we don't want to be jerks, right? I, don't, I just don't want to be a jerk. I, I get frustrated, and we might get frustrated with people when you see things wrong, you, you see their sin, you see their error, you see their folly or foolishness, and you get frustrated inside. Because you care about them, and you want what's best for them, but you don't know how to correct them. At the same time that you, you're frustrated, you also just want peace, right? I just want peace. I, I mean, I just want harmony between us. I just wish that, that like, I didn't have to say anything and that they would just do things well. And let's just, can we just all get along and have peace? But if I say something, we feel like that's going to break the what? It's going to break the peace, right? And so I don't want to be inconvenienced. God, can you just help me? with this type of situation? God means for us to see the errors and sins of others. It's not an accident that you see it. God designed for you to see it and notice it. He even wants you to feel frustrated by their folly. He wants you to be upset at their sins. He wants you to care. People need us to correct them. They need it. So here's the main goal of the sermon in this passage. Correct righteously so that you enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, the whole goal of, of, this, of the Sermon on the Mount is pursue surpassing righteousness so that you may enter the kingdom of heaven. And now Jesus is being specific here. Correct righteously so that you may enter the kingdom of heaven. Correct righteously so that you may enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, how do you correct righteously? We all know how to correct unrighteously. We don't need coaching for that. We just do that all the time, right? That comes natural to us, to correct unrighteously. But how do you correct righteously when you see the sins and folly of others? Well, there's three ways. I'll give you all three, and then we'll go, to them. We'll go through them one at a time. Number one, correct with restorative judgment. Correct with restorative judgment. Number two, correct with authentic clarity. Correct with authentic clarity. And then number three, let's see if I can remember it here. Correct with strategic love. Correct with strategic love, okay? If you do these three things, Jesus is telling you this is how you correct righteously, with restorative judgment, authentic clarity, and strategic love. Verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 5, and verse 6. Okay, so let's look at these one at a time. First of all, correct with restorative judgment. Now, the most popular verse in the Bible, Matthew 7, 1. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. That's a present tense imperative, and if you wanted to translate the present tense in the Greek here, you could actually translate it rightly um, and even maybe more accurately, bring the idea out, stop judging so that you won't be judged. In other words, it's not just don't judge in general as a general principle, stop judging. The assumption is you're already, you're already judging people. You're already making judgments on people. You're already having your opinions and pressing what you think about them, at least in your mind. You're cycling that through. Maybe you're even talking to other people about them. And so Jesus says, stop it. Stop judging. Stop judging. It's it's the same thing as saying, don't complain. You could say to someone, don't complain. But most of the time when you need to say, don't complain, you actually need to be saying, stop complaining. Because they're already complaining. It's the same thing here. You could say don't complain. You could say stop complaining, but it's the same thing. But one, gives, one actually brings out the idea that it's presently here. We are presently judging, and Jesus is telling us to stop judging. 
What does he mean by judging here? Don't judge. What does he mean by judge? There's a few ways you could define this word. You could define it as the word evaluate. Don't evaluate. Don't analyze. But is that, what Jesus, is that really what Jesus is saying? Don't think? Don't assess and don't evaluate? No, he's not saying don't evaluate. So that's not what he means by don't judge. Maybe he means a legal declaration. Some people take this as a law thing. Don't, don't become a judge and sit on a court bench somewhere and, and make judgments. Does God want judges, to, does, God, does God want the judicial court system to just be done away with? No, that's not what he's saying here either. Others might say, don't judge means don't judge harshly. Don't be judgmental. That's actually what a lot of commentators say. And that's almost right. It's actually right-ish. It, it is right, but it's, it's not really getting at the heart of it. What's, what's the heart of it then? Here's what I think is the heart of it. It's not don't judge harshly or don't, judge, don't be judgmental. It's don't condemn. Don't condemn. Don't pronounce final judgment as if you're the final judge and you know about this person and you know the final judgment on that person. Don't condemn. Now, you might say, well, I don't really condemn people. I don't say that person's going to hell. Okay, maybe you don't condemn, but I think you do condemn. Maybe not in that specific, explicit way, but in certain ways, the way we make a judgment opinion on someone, we actually do condemn them. Now, let me explain. So, if you go to... um, and I, the reason why I think harshness is sort, of, is sort of right is because harshness in judgmentalism comes from a condemning type of, of um, opinion. Once you're already condemning, that's why you are harsh, because of the condemnation. So harshness is tied to this idea of don't judge, but it's not the core. The core is don't condemn. Don't pronounce final judgment. L- listen to James 4, 11 and 12. Same idea here in James 4, 11 and 12. Don't criticize one another, not the same word, don't criticize one another or speak harshly to one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. So if you judge the person, you're judging the law. And if you judge the law, you're not a doer of a law, but a judge. Now here's, here's where the condemnation comes in, verse 12, James 4, 12. There is one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Are you the one judge and lawgiver? No. Who is? God is. You're not the one judge and lawgiver, so therefore do not judge your neighbor, meaning don't pronounce final judgment. Don't condemn as if you know the final outcome of their lives. Now, someone might say, well, I don't say I'm condemning them. I'm just saying that they're wrong here. Well, maybe you are, but when you judge harshly, it's because of this judgmental attitude that you're God. You're actually saying, God, get off the bench. I'm the final judge. And that's pride, right? That's self-exaltation. I'm God, not you, God. Step down. Let me judge this person. And when you have this pride and self-exaltation, you act like you're a God. You act like you're God. And here, get this, brothers and sisters. When you act like you're a God, you correct to control. You don't correct to restore. And that's the problem. You correct to control, you don't correct to restore. You're annoyed, you're frustrated, they're frustrating you, and if I just could judge them, then I can control them and I won't have the problem anymore. That's condemning. You want to control them? You're God? You're the one who sits on the bench? You're the one in control? And they have to bow down to your sovereign will? Really? That's correcting to control. But you could correct to restore, meaning... I'm going to correct your sin, but I don't have the final judgment. Maybe you might repent, right? They might repent and get restored. So I'm not going to judge you as if I have the final judgment. I have a preliminary judgment call that says, hey, brother or sister, you're sinning. And guess what? You can be restored. You see the difference in spirit? If you're correcting to restore, you're not going to be harsh because that doesn't help them get restored. But if you're correcting to control, of course you're going to be harsh because you're frustrated. You're annoyed. You're irritated. And Jesus says, stop it. Stop condemning. Stop judging harshly. Stop judging, stop correcting to control. Because you're not the judge and you're not in control. You're an instrument of God to restore people, not control people. Restore them to God and restore them to others. Now, why should you do this? Look at verse 1 again. Don't correct to control. Don't judge so that you won't what? 
so that you won't be judged. And continue verse 2, why? For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use to others. So if you use a standard of final condemnation, guess how God's going to judge you? With what? The same standard, which means you're going to where? Hell, you're not a Christian. You don't have that surpassing righteousness. You don't correct righteously. You correct unrighteously, and you're not truly a Christian. That's what he's saying. So stop judging that way. Because true Christians don't. What is the right standard? The right standard is restorative judgment. Your standard will be used on you. God's word is the right standard of right and wrong, correct? Who gets to define sin? God does. Do we get to define sin? No. God says what's right and wrong. God God says what's sinful and what's righteous. God says what's foolish and what's wise. God is the judge. We are the messengers of the judge, right? And so if we, so we got to use the Bible standard, but even when you use the Bible, you could still use the Bible in a judgmental way, right? You could still use the Bible to control people rather than to restore people. So what's that standard? So there's two types of standards here, brothers and sisters. There's the standard of graceless condemnation and grace-shaped restoration. Those are the two standards you can use when you judge people. Graceless condemnation or grace-shaped restoration. When you use graceless condemnation, guess what you're going to be judged with? Graceless condemnation. If you use grace-shaped restoration as your standard, now restoration still still means repentance, right? It still means faith in, in the Lord, but if you use that standard, guess what you're going to be judged by? The same standard of grace-shaped judgment. Graceless justice says sin and wrong deserve damnation, and that's true. But grace-shaped justice says even though you sin and you're wrong, you can be forgiven if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. You can be restored if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. You can change if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And when God corrects you and when you correct others with the goal of restoration, you're not harsh. You're gentle. You're not self-righteous and arrogant. You're humble. And if you're not that, you'll be judged by graceless judgment. So God is warning us here. Second two, t- Second Timothy 2, 24 to 26 gives the, the idea here. So turn there. This is one of my favorite verses in the last four years of my life. Second Timothy 2, 24 to 26. This gives the spirit of what the right way of judging is. Judging with restorative judgment, not graceless judgment. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, it says this, and this is applying to all Christians. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, and what? Patient, instructing his opponents with what? Gentleness. In case you didn't get gentle earlier, it tells you again, gentleness. Instruct your opponents with gentleness. And then what does it say after that? Perhaps God, I love that word perhaps. That just gives me hope. It just makes me know I'm not crazy. If they don't repent, that's not guaranteed. Perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they will escape, they will come to their senses and escape the trap of who? The devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Here's the question. Do you want to free them from the devil? Do you want to help? Do you want to shake them out of their nonsense? Then be gentle and patient and instruct them with gentleness. Correct to restore. But if you don't care about the restoration, oh, they're never going to repent anyways. They're, 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 they're done. They're hopeless. Well, you're going to correct to control. And when you correct to control, you disobey Jesus' command here in Matthew 7. Does that make sense? Are you guys following here? Okay. So, correct with hope, with the openness to the possibility that they can repent. Now, they might not repent. That's not your job. Now, remember the, 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 the two praying at the temple, the Pharisee and the tax collector? The tax collector today would be more akin to a drug dealer, a wealthy drug dealer who gets rich off of dealing drugs. And they're both praying, and the, the, the Pharisee, the religious pastor, so to speak, he'll look at the, the, the drug dealer and say, thank you, God, that I'm not like him. This guy's hopeless. But me, I have all these good things in my life. I give regularly. I tithe. I, I teach people things. I love people. I'm not like this drug dealer. What is he saying there? That this guy is hopeless. This guy is condemned, and I'm not. That's self-righteous judgmentalism, harshness that comes from a condemning type of judgment. Instead of doing that, 
You should do what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 5. When we do church discipline here at this church, as we're following 1 Corinthians 5, we, when we excommunicate someone from this church after the long process of pursuing them, our hope is still restoration, right? Paul says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, hand them over to Satan, that's excommunication, hand them over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Why are you handing them over to Satan? So that they can be what? Saved. Correct to restore. That keeps a church from being judgmental even when they practice excommunication. Correction. Some people, some churches, when they excommunicate, they say you, can, you can't attend our services and you can't talk to any of our people. That is not what excommunication is. Of course you want them to talk to your people. Of course you want them to hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. Why would you cut them off from the place where they're going to hear the gospel preached? That's harsh. That's condemning, not restoring. So, church member, Christian, correct with restorative judgment. Don't be harsh by being condemning as if you know the final judgment. They might not repent. They might be condemned, but let God do that, not you. Give a preliminary correction and judgment, leaving the final judgment to God. As a church family, let me just encourage you, BBC, brothers and sisters, you excel in this. We have done some painful excommunication, church discipline stuff in this church, and you, brothers and sisters, have had a spirit of restoration and not criticism in a, in a judgmental, condemning way. And brothers and sisters, you ought to be commended for that. You are a model to me and to other churches of how to love well. So let us be a restoring church and not a judgmental church. Let's not excommunicate recklessly, but you know how else you can be judgmental? By not correcting at all. So I want to warn us, BBC, another way of being judgmental is not correcting at all, because you know what happens? When you see someone do wrong and you don't correct them, does that mean you're not judging them in your mind? You're absolutely judging them in your mind. But what are you not doing? You're not correcting to what? Restore. So guess what you're doing? You're condemning them. Where? In your mind. Not speaking and correcting is also judging them because you're still judging them in your mind and condemning them. So if we're going to not be a judgmental church, we need to not stay silent and then just judge them in our minds or even worse, gossip to other people about them and not talk to the person. That's sinful. That's damnable. To gossip and slander another person made in God's image and not talk to them directly. Instead of being judgmental and condemning, let's correct to restore. If you're not a Christian, I have the sweetest news for you. Restoration is available to sinners. We're all sinners. We all deserve damnation for our sins. Here's the gospel message. The gospel message is that God made you and He made me. He made us in His image to reflect Him and enjoy Him. But we have rebelled and sinned against God and we sin against God all the time, even in our judgmentalism. And here's the sweet news. The sweet news is God sent His Son Jesus into this world to die for your sins and take the judgment you deserve and rise from the dead so that if you would repent from your sins and trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord and receive Him, God would forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. He'd forgive you of all your sins and, and, and restore you to Him to walk in newness of life by His Holy Spirit. You can be forgiven of all your sins, and you can be forgiven repeatedly as you continue to live this life and keep sinning. You can be restored again and again and again if you would just repent from your sins now and trust in Jesus. You don't have to be damned or condemned, but without Jesus, we'll all be condemned and damned. So Jesus is inviting you even this morning to repent from your sins and trust in Him now. To America, to our society, I say this, God's Word says this, God is the final judge in our land, not the Supreme Court, not the popular opinion of American culture. The final judge on the final day is God. So... American citizens, family, neighbors, hear God's correction through His churches. God is correcting you in love to restore. If you're a parent, correct to restore, don't correct to control. You're not God. You don't have to go there, parents. You can rejoice in your God-given role to restore your child to God, to others, to themselves, and to this world. And you can restore your kids again and again and again that they learn to live by grace and not by performance. Children, especially children who have a lot of siblings, like my children, correct to restore. Don't correct to control other children. You still do it. You don't have to be older. You don't have to be a, an adult to correct to control. 
Kids do it all the time. Kids try to control their parents by correcting to control. Kids correct to restore. Be aware that you also desire to control others in this world. Even the little two-year-olds try to control the world. Spouses correct to, to restore, not to control. Single people, single members, continue to speak the truth into the lives of your family and even the church family to restore them. If you're, if you're at the workforce as an employee or a student, be a light, be a contrast. Everyone is judging there. Be someone who corrects to restore rather than who corrects to condemn. Be different. Be the light of the world and the salt of the earth at your work and in your school. If you're a retiree, don't believe the lie that your time has passed and you can't affect change in anyone's life anymore. Your time is not gone. God wants you to correct people to restore them. God wants to restore image bearers through restorative correction and judgment. So that's the first point. Correct righteously. How? By correcting with restorative judgment. Secondly, correct not only with restorative judgment, but correct with authentic clarity. Correct with authentic clarity. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Now, have you ever got something stuck in your eye before? A hair or something, and you're, you know, it's really annoying when you have it in your eye, right? But is it obvious to everyone that you have something in your eye? No, like, you know, you might go to your friend and say, hey, can you check if I have something in my eye? And you have to lift it, and they have to get what? Really close to see if there's a speck of dust in your eye. It's not obvious from, from outside. And so they got to get really close. They got to look very carefully. You got to stay still. And then they have to see, they have to look with extreme care and attention to find if there really is a little speck in your eye. And if they have to take it out, they have to be super careful because the eye is one of the most sensitive parts of our whole body, right? Um, and, so, and so we have to be very careful with the eye when we're taking a speck out. We have to use meticulous care. And Jesus says in verse 3, why do you look at the splinter or the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice what? The log or the beam of wood in your own eye. You, you don't, when he says you don't notice, a better, uh, maybe a, a fuller translation is you pay no careful attention. You don't even think about the fact that there's a beam of wood in your own eye. And then verse 4 says, how can you say to your brother, this is, this is the, audacity of, um, the audacity of confidence here. It says, you know, this overconfident initiative. How can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your own eye, and what? There's a what? There's a beam of wood in your own eye. Why would you be so confident? I have here a Louisville slugger little bat from Southern Seminary. Now imagine me trying to correct one of you because there's something in your eye. Let me, let me get close to... You know, to, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Like, this is, this is the ridiculousness of Jesus' picture. This is you. This is me. We correct people all the time. We're like, oh, look, you got a speck in your eye. Come, come here. Let me, let me take the speck out of your eye. And what's protruding out of your eye? A beam of wood. It's ridiculous. You, like, you don't, and, and Jesus says, you don't even notice the beam of wood in your eye. But you can see from, from this far, I can see this, the little dust in your eye. Really? I mean, th- this, is, this looks ridiculous because it is ridiculous. And Jesus is trying to say, you're ridiculous. How ridiculous it is for us to correct with a beam of wood sticking out of our faces as we try to get close to people and be like, hold on, let, let, me, let me get that thing in your eye. You're hitting them in the face with the beam while you're trying to help them with their, their little piece of dust in their eye. So what does Jesus call us in verse 5? If that's what you do, what are you? You're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. How, how can you be so bugged by the speck of dust in their eye and there's a log protruding out of your face? It makes no sense. You're a hypocrite. What does it mean to be a hypocrite? To be two-faced, acting one way because you're so concerned about them, right? You're so concerned about the speck in their eye. You're so, you see 2020, right? You could see their speck so clearly from so far away and yet you don't even notice the log sticking out of your face, you hypocrite. You can't live one way and then, and then, and then expect others to, to bow to your opinion about what you see in their life the other way. So Jesus gives us advice. What's the advice in verse 5? What's the command in verse 5? Hypocrite, first do what? Take the beam of wood 
out of your eye, then you will see clearly to take the log out of their eye. That makes sense, right? I mean, if I had that beam sticking out of my eye, if I take it out, can I see better? Yes, right? You take the beam of wood out of your eye first, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, let's just do something about proportion. Beam of wood, speck of dust. Which one's bigger? The beam of wood. Who has the beam of wood? You or that other person? You do, right? Or I do. We do. We have the beam of wood in our eye, and what's their sin? It's a speck of dust. What is Jesus saying here? Your sin should be a bigger deal to you than their sin. Why do you act like they're the one with a beam in their eye and you're the one with a speck of dust in your own eye? That's not what he's saying. Before you remove the beam from their eye, remove the speck from your eye. Is that what Jesus says? No. You're the one with the log. You're the one with the beam. Not them. No, but PJ, you don't know. Do you know know what they're doing with their lives? They're doing this and that and this and that. Like, Okay, so, so they're the one with the log and you're the one with the, with, the, with the speck? Is that what Jesus is saying? He's not saying that. Here's Jesus' point. Your sin ought to always be a bigger deal than the other person's sin. And when it's not, you're, in a, you're going in the wrong direction. You're not following Jesus. You're following Satan at that point. If their sin is a bigger deal to you than your sin, I mean, do you ever get to the point where you're doing a prayer of confession? You don't even know what sins to confess because you don't even know that you have any sins? That's a dangerous place to be in your life when you can't even name a sin in your life in the past week. You know what that means? You're insensitive to your sin. You're blind to it. You don't see the log in your own eye. You don't consider it at all. But you can name 5,000 sins in other people's eyes because your, your vision is 20-20 with the one eye that doesn't have a log sticking out. So we exaggerate our strengths and we minimize our weaknesses. You need to view your sin as bigger. Why is it bigger though? Because it's a bigger deal for you because it's your sin. And your sin, if your sin is bigger, guess what? If you see your sin is bigger, let me go back to Matthew 5. I'm just going to quote it here. Matthew 5, 3 through 9, 3 through 8. If your sin is bigger than the other person's sin, guess what that's going to make you? Poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they will be what? Comforted. Blessed are the gentle or the humble or the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. What is he saying? You don't hunger for th- and thirst for righteousness when you think that you don't have any sin and the sins in everyone else. Are you hungry? You're not hungry. Are you humble? You're not humble. Are you poor in spirit when you see everyone else's sin but don't see your own? Do you feel the bankruptcy of your soul? Of course not. You're not, you're not a Christian if you can't see your sin and all you can see is the sins of others. You won't be poor in spirit. You won't be brokenhearted. You won't hunger and thirst for righteousness. You won't see God. You won't be merciful and compassionate to others. You'll be judgmental and harsh. Why would you have compassion? And you wouldn't be a peacemaker at that point either. Why are you, personal question for you now, why are you, when someone corrects you, why are you so defensive? Why? Why are you so defensive when others point out your sin? If you obeyed the words of Jesus and were poor in spirit, defensiveness would die and joy would thrive. If you could kill your defensiveness, if you would obey the words of Jesus, defensiveness would die. If you took your sin as the log and their sin as the speck, if you really believed that, your personal defensiveness when people correct you would die and your joy in Christ would thrive. We are insensitive to our sin. So here's another gift of God. I love this. Think about how kind God is. <laughs> We're so insensitive to our own sin, you know what God does? He lets us see the sins of others. And not only does he let you see the sins of others, he lets you feel annoyed and frustrated. He lets you feel a passion. Why? Because you could see it. It's hard to see yourself, but you could see them. And then you know what God does? So when you see someone else's sin, and you're so frustrated with them, and you're so irritated, and you're so fed up with them, God says, okay, now lift up the mirror. Because guess who has that sin? You do. That's so kind of God, because we're so insensitive and blind to ourselves that God will help you see it in another person just so you can have an inkling of a feeling of how bad your own sin is. Praise God that he lets us see the sins of others. 
If I didn't see the sins of others, I would never be tempted to even say, well, what about me? But if you could see the sins of others, that's a gift from God to you to raise your sensitivity so that when you actually look in the mirror, you can actually see your own sin. Because if you don't see the sins in others, you have no passion for sin at all, anywhere. So you're not going to have any passion against your own sin. So God wants you to see the sins of others clearly, and then when you see the sins of others clearly, he wants you to feel a passion against their sin, and he says, okay, take all that passion and channel to who? Yourself. Channel to yourself, and get on your face and repent before God. And then what does Jesus say after you do that? After you remove the log from your own eye, with that passion and frustration, channel at yourself. Then you will see what? Clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Then you will see clearly. You don't see clearly until you do what? Until you repent. You can't see clearly. This is why my second point here is correct with authentic clarity. You're not authentic when you're not taking the log out of your eye. You're a hypocrite. But if you repent first, you're authentic. Authentic doesn't mean sinless. It means repentant. So if you're authentically repenting and you're owning your own sin... Now you can see clearly, now you have authentic clarity to correct them. So now that you can see clearly, correct them and take the speck out of their eye. You know how we see? We see by comparison. What we do regularly is we're always comparing ourselves to other people. That's not wrong, necessarily. We're always comparing ourselves to others. That's how we get a sense of this world. Here's where it goes wrong. There's two types of comparisons. Check yourself, which one do you line up with? There is... Confusing comparisons and clarifying comparisons. What is a confusing comparison? A confusing comparison is a comparison that deepens your sin and self-deception. Because you compare your strengths with their weaknesses and you start to feel better about who? Yourself. And you get more and more blind to your own sin. You get more and more insensitive to your own sin because you are using a confusing comparison. Let me think about that brother's weakness and compare it to my strength. Oh, man, I feel really good about myself. And what's happening? I'm getting more and more confused. I'm getting more and more confused because I can't see clearly. Because every time I see someone, I'm seeing myself in positive and them in negative, and I just get more and more hardened in my own sin. What's the other side of, what's the other kind of comparison? Not confusing comparison, but clarifying comparison. What's a clarifying comparison? Where I see others, I compare it to my sin, I take that passion and fight against my sin to take the log out, and now I can see what? Clearly. That's a clarifying comparison. Compare your life to someone else to see your sin clearer to take it out, then you could see their sin clearer. Clarifying comparison. You always compare yourself to others. The only question is, are you comparing yourself to them in such a way that you're getting more and more confused about who you are? Or are you actually getting clearer on who you are and how best to help them? So this is a call to correct. Notice here, God is not saying don't correct others. Does he say take the log out of your own eye and then just go on with your life? What does he say? Take the log out of your eye and then what? You'll see clearly to take what? The speck out of your brother's eye. So does he want you to correct them? Yes or no? Yes. You're still called to correct others. You're not only to take logs out of your eye, but specks out of theirs. The Beatitudes is not just be poor in spirit and hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's also blessed are the peacemakers. You know what I mean? You know how to make peace? You got to tell people where their peace is lacking. When you tell someone where their peace is lacking or the source of their lack of peace, guess what you're doing? You're correcting them. Here's why you don't have peace with God, brother or sister. Here's why you don't have peace with other people, brother or sister. Here's why you don't have peace with God or others, neighbor. Because you're not repenting from your sin, but you're treasuring your sin and you're denying Christ. So if you're going to be a peacemaker, you're going to bring the prince of peace to bear on their lives, which means you need to correct them. So Jesus is not against correction. You can't be, so he wants you to make peace. He wants you to care about them. Christians cannot be indifferent, apathetic, or neutral to peace-stealing sins in other people's lives. People have peace-stealing sins in their lives. You can't be careless about it. You have to care, which means you have to correct. When you're getting corrected, and what about when you get corrected? When you get corrected, brothers and sisters, beware of the you too fallacy. When so, you, know, you, you know what the YouTube fallacy is? It's like if you're correcting me for my sin, let's say I'm talking to a brother who's impatient as a father. Not that any of us fathers are ever impatient with our kids, but let's just pretend that that actually happened, right? 
that I was impatient with my kids, and so Ben's talking to me and says, you know what, and he was, you know, I just saw him get impatient with one of his kids, and he comes up and says, P- you know, PJ, the way you're talking to your kids, you're kind of impatient, are you, you need to check your heart, brother, and I'm like, oh yeah, what about you, you too? <laughs> As if that just blocks it, and now I don't have to repent anymore? That's a you too fallacy. What you said to me is untrue because you're doing it too. Is that true? No, I mean, if I'm impatient, I'm impatient. It doesn't matter whether he's, he is too. That's a U2 fallacy, and we use that all the time as some sort of deflection as if that means we can't be rebuked. That's satanic and stupid, as you can see. And so beware of the U2 fallacy. If someone, if someone doesn't take the log out of their own eye first, still be grateful. You know, so if you don't take your log out and you come to me first, what I want to do in my better self is to say, you know what, thank you for helping me see this. I'm going to examine my own heart, and I'm going to pray about it. And then I'll come and talk to you later about other things. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe tomorrow. But, but the point is, I don't, want to get, I don't want to go back right away and just say, well, what about you? Because if I do that, I'm not actually getting to receive from God what he might be bringing to me through you. At least in my better self. Okay? Friends, correction is a wonderful gift of God. Because God's correction to you gives you more of God. So focus on self-examination. Do it before the Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. We're taking it tonight at 5. And here's another thing, another application for you guys. Invite and receive correction with gratitude. God corrects you through other people. God corrects you through other people. Thank them for it and embrace correction. And then embrace your responsibility to correct other people. Church family, the church needs to be humble and gracious and correctable correctors. That's what you need to be. That's what we need to be as a church, a group of correctable correctors. We correct others, but we're also correctable. That's what a church needs to be, a group of correctable correctors. They don't have enough of, um, people in the world don't have enough of these people in their lives. They have a lot of correctors in their lives. Everyone's a corrector, actually. Everyone is a corrector. But non-Christians and other people at our work and schools, they don't have enough correctable correctors in their lives. Why don't you be one of those correctable correctors to them? You'll be a tremendous gift to them, and you'll be a tremendous gift to this church if you are that. To the non-Christian society, to the society at large, listen to the perspectives of others. If you know the truth, you don't have to cut off other people from their opinions. You can respect, respectfully listen to their opinions, understand their perspective, and then engage them humbly. Now, if you don't know the truth, you might actually learn the truth in engaging people. If you know the truth, you don't have to be closing people off from a conversation. If you're not a Christian, you might say, this is why I would never be a Christian, because Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Guess what? Jesus agrees. He says so right here. He calls, he's telling his disciples, you act hypocritically when you do this. So if you say, I could never become a Christian because Christians are hypocrites, let me say four things to you. Number one, sorry. And I mean that. We are sorry that we, we are hypocritical. We actually need God's forgiveness and your forgiveness when we're hypocritical towards you. So please come and tell us to remove logs out of our eyes because we need it. So you're right. When you see hypocrisy, call it out. Please call it out. Directly to us and not, you know, just to other people. Secondly, Jesus hates hypocrisy more than you do. So don't reject Jesus because you hate hypocrisy. You're actually on his team. You're like, what? I was trying to get away from him. No, you're actually on his team. You know, he's like, he's right beside you. You're thinking like, I'm getting away from Jesus because I hate hypocrisy. And he's right there beside you. Like, yep, me too. So, so that's number two. Number three, recognize true Christians. Recognize that um, true Christians recognize and repent from their hypocrisy. True Christians see their hypocrisy. And number four, realize, if you're not a Christian, that you're a hypocrite too. You're a hypocrite too. We're all hypocrites in some ways. At times, we just need restoration. If you're a child, children, be a weird kid who grows in wisdom. You know how to be a weird kid? Be extra thankful when you're corrected by others, especially your parents. That will trip your parents out. Be super thankful. Thank you, Mom, for correcting me and showing me how I can grow in Christ. What a blessing. What a privilege. And start singing as you walk away, you know? <laughs> Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine or something, you know? Um, this is my story. This is my song, you know? Be, be someone who's actually thankful that you're being corrected. Christians should be the most thankful people when they're corrected, not defensive. Parents, encourage your children to respectfully correct you. You do fight in dwelling sin as a parent, don't you? Spouses, 
Spouses, listen up. Marriage counseling. This verse is always used in marriage counseling. Take the log out of your eye first. Take the log out of your eye first. Whenever I get, you know, get in counseling situations and you're like, PJ, you need to talk, I need to talk to you about my marriage, and then you're going to give me the laundry list of your spouse's logs. And I'm like, do you have, any, do you have anything in your eye? No. I might, I might have a speck or two, you know. But, but that, my spouse, though, you know, I'm not saying they don't have things to correct. We need to correct. Your, and your spouse, I mean, objectively speaking, might be the bigger problem. That's true. That can happen. But you still need to check your logs first. All right? Then remove the speck. Singles, don't let your singleness, singles, listen to this, don't let your singleness lead to secrecy and isolation. Just because you're not married doesn't mean you should have people speaking into your life too. Your church family loves you. People love you. Let them speak into your life. Workers, don't be personally offended when you're corrected. Students, don't be personally offended when you're corrected either. God is teaching you in that situation. Retirees, don't think you reach an age when you don't have logs in your own eye. I was actually in the, um, in the membership class over here. Um, one of the people was asking, wait, so when you're glorified, is that like towards the end of your life? I'm like, no, it's actually after you die. <laughs> She's like, well, what about when you get closer to death? Like, is that when you like have no more sin? Nope, nope. You got logs in your eye all the way, to, all the way till you die. So, so um, um, retirees, those who are elder brothers and sisters, don't, don't be um, closed off to even younger brothers and sisters also correcting you because we all have sins. We all have at least specs, right? So invite your younger people into your life too. If you're discouraged, I want to tell you God is actually encouraging you through your correctors. If you're feeling weak, God helps you to, um, God helps you to get strength through those who are lovingly correcting you. If you're stumbling in your sin, stop closing out correction. Stop and listen to correction. Don't get hardened in sinful habits. It will destroy your soul. And if you're encouraged in your Christian life, keep growing in repentance. Okay, so let's go. So the two things, and we'll go to the third one. What's the first one? If you're going to correct righteously, correct with what? Restorative judgment, okay? Not graceless judgment. Secondly, if you're going to correct righteously, correct with authentic clarity. Authentic clarity, not hypocritical, um, you know, unclarity or uh, um, hypocritical fog where you're just not seeing correctly because of your own sin. And lastly, thirdly, correct with what? Strategic love. Strategic love. Why do I call this strategic love? Look at chapter 7, verse 6. Last verse. Here we are. Don't give what is holy to the dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. What does that mean? (laughs) It means correct with strategic love. That's what it means. Now, what's this picture? So, if you throw what is holy to dogs, do they recognize the holiness of it? No. Okay, now, we're not Roman Catholic, so we don't believe the bread turns into the actual body of Jesus and the blood turns into it. But imagine if here during communion, you know, I'm about to, we're here and we're taking communion. I say, this is my, you know, we're going to remember Christ. This is my, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then a dog comes up and I start giving the dog some of the crackers. Would you, would you feel like that's appropriate? No, that's completely inappropriate, Right? Don't give what is, I mean, even though it's not the body of Christ in a Roman Catholic false teaching way, it is holy. We're remembering the death of Christ. We're remembering His body broken for us as we take this. This is a holy moment. You don't take holy moments and just, or holy things like consecrated food and just, you know, toss it to the dogs because the dogs don't know the difference between consecrated food and non-consecrated food. They just eat it and then they want more and they'll attack you if you don't give them enough. And if you give them that little cracker, that's not enough. So they'll tear you to pieces, perhaps. Because that's not enough, okay? So, so what, what Jesus is saying is dogs don't recognize what is holy, and pigs don't recognize what is valuable. Because what are you throwing at pigs here? What is Jesus telling you not to throw at pigs? What? Pearls. Pearls are valuable. Pearls are expensive. But to, but to the dog, a pearl is similar to a rock. They'll just see it, and they'll move on. They'll trample it under their feet, and they'll move on. They'll check if it's edible. edible. Oh, it's not edible? Okay, then they just leave it there. So Jesus is saying, don't throw what is holy to those who don't recognize the holiness of it. And don't throw what is valuable to those who don't recognize the value of what you're saying. So some people take the dogs and pigs as, as non-Christians, as pagans, because Jesus does call dogs Gentiles later on. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think a dog or a pig can even be a Christian. A dog or a pig is someone 
who is, at, at least in this season of their life, they are settled and resolved on unteachability to the gospel and biblical correction when you give it. They're settled in their minds, I am not going to listen. I am not going to obey. I'm not going to be teachable. In that season, they are a what? A dog or a pig. They can't recognize the holiness of what you're saying to them, that you're actually giving them the life of God in your words and correction. They just can't hear it. They don't understand that, the, that what you're giving them in biblical correction and in gospelizing them is actually the life of God for them. And they don't recognize the value. So what do they do? They trample it. To them, that word from God to them is the same as some word on the radio that some DJ is saying in between songs. It's just, it's worthless. It means nothing. It's in one ear and out the other. It's worthless. So dogs don't recognize what is holy. Pigs don't recognize what is valuable. And people oftentimes don't recognize the value and holiness of what biblical correction is being given to them from other Christians who are loving them. So the pearls and what is holy is biblical correction and gospel correction that gives them God, gives them Jesus. When they are, uh, so, so pigs, pigs, sorry, pigs, <laughs> might as well make you laugh so that you can move on. Pigs are utterly uninterested, and dogs are obstinately opposed. It's a gift of biblical truth that God gives it to them, and yet they think it's worthless. Is God worthless when you're giving them God? God is absolutely not worthless. He is the most valuable being in the universe. And if they're going to take the God you're giving them in your words and trample on him, what is Jesus telling you to do? Stop. Don't give it to him anymore. It's over for now. Now, remember, not forever, because if you do that, you're correcting to control, and you're condemning, you're not correcting to restore. But you, there comes a point where you stop correcting somebody because they don't want to hear it anymore. They're not receiving it, and you've already made it clear. So what is the point here? Correct with strategic love. It's strategic to correct them. It's strategic to stop correcting them. You're always to love them. Even when you shake the dust off your feet and move on, which you're supposed to do, you still should be loving them. That's a strategy. That's part of hoping, hoping to, to lead them to restoration. When we excommunicate someone, we stop pursuing them. Does that mean we don't, want, we don't want them to be restored? No, it's strategic. Us not correcting you anymore and leaving you or handing you over to Satan is maybe one of the ways that eventually you learn to come back to Jesus, right? It's strategic love. It's not hardness where I forget you because you're forgetting us. We'll forget you. That's, not, that's strategic. That might not be loving though. It's I love you. I'm brokenhearted about your hard-heartedness, but I'm done talking to you about it for now because I'm not going to throw pearls to pigs. This is Proverbs 9.8. Don't rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise person and he will love you. One commentator wrote, stop, af stop after sustained rejection and repro reproach. So here's the point. Jesus prescribes a truth stopper for the truth mocker. I'll say that again. Jesus prescribes a truth stopper for the truth mocker. For the one who hears the truth, but they just mock it. They're done. They don't recognize it. They're mocking the truth now, and they're mocking you. You're done. Stop it. A truth stopper for the truth mocker. They're just going to trample it. As you keep giving them God, they just keep trampling on God again and again and again. Move on. They are utterly uninterested or obstinately opposed. So move on. Mark Dever said, obedience does not always mean speaking. You can speak at the wrong to the wrong people at the wrong time. There comes a time to stop speaking. This is not an excuse for you to not gospelize someone clearly. You need to clearly give them the correction. But after you've clearly given them the correction and the direction that God's giving them, if they refuse to obey, if they don't want to hear you anymore, if they are utterly uninterested, then move on in love. So church family, this is not a call to cowardice where you say, oh, good, so I don't have to correct anymore? I could just move on? Because he's a dog. She's a pig. Well, no, did you clearly correct them? Have you made it clear what God's word is to them? If you haven't, don't, don't call them that, that yet. See if they're obstinately opposed or utterly uninterested. And then stop. But you have to communicate it clearly first. Does that make sense? Don't be a coward with this. Make your correction clear with gentleness and patience. And then see where they're at.
with it. God might use your strategic withdrawal to lead them to himself. Just think about the Apostle Paul. If you would have been correcting him when he was killing Christians, guess what would happen to you? You get killed too. You get arrested. But then there comes a season where he's more correctable, right? So when they're in the season of dogness or pigness, stop correcting them. Stop. Just, just back up and just move on to other people. And God might even use that to, to help them. So Christian, let's help each other discern when someone, is, when someone is not clearly correcting. And let's help each other discern, hey, you know what? You need to stop now. You need to pull back, brother, because you've done your job. If you're a stubborn Christian, listen to me, stubborn Christians who are stuck in their sin. Don't confuse people correcting you as their desire to control you if they're trying to restore you. Or you might, you're, you might find yourself as a dog or a pig. This happens a lot when, when, we, when we've done excommunication. I think I've been part of six excommunications in my life now in the past eight years or ten years. In, in these six excommunications, almost always they think we're trying to control them until they realize that we're actually trying to what? Restore them. But when they think that, you just can't go on anymore. I mean, they just think you're trying to control them, so there's, there's nothing else you can do at that point. You just, I'm done. We, we did our job. It's time to just leave you to the Lord and to Satan and just whatever happens, but we're here and we love you. So I'm telling you, if you're that stubborn professing Christian, what I'm telling you is don't confuse strategic love for someone trying to strategically control you or else you'll find yourself a pig or a dog for a season and maybe for an eternity. If you're not a Christian, you're here, you're most likely not a dog or a pig because you're here. You actually wanted to listen to God's word unless someone forced you to come here today. If you came here as an, and you're not a Christian and you're actually wanting to listen, that's good. What I want to encourage you to do is not trample the pearls. God is speaking to you about Jesus this morning. Take it as a treasure and take Jesus as your treasure and repent from your sins this morning. To the broader society, there is a judgment day coming for everyone in this world. So listen carefully whenever God gives you the gift of his correction and his word. So brothers and sisters, correct righteously so that you enter the kingdom of heaven. What are, to summarize, what are the three? Correct with what? Restorative judgment. Correct with what? Authentic clarity. And thirdly, correct with strategic love. Now, do we do this well? Do we do this perfectly? We don't. We fail often. But you know, Jesus didn't. Jesus doesn't. Even today, Jesus is correcting us with restorative judgment, authentic clarity, and strategic love. But Jesus' strategic love actually went further. The strategy went further. He gave what is holy to dogs, and they turned and what? Tore him to pieces. On the, cross of, on the cross, Jesus was damned by God, but he was judged and he was crucified by the dogs and the pigs, in a sense. Those who were so hard-hearted and so utterly uninterested, Jesus' Jesus's strategy was to go that far so that he could take the judgment that we deserve, the graceless judgment we deserve, so that we can have that grace-shaped restoration. And so that we can offer grace-shaped restoration to other sinners. Christ took our place. He was torn to pieces. And he was damned by God, even though he never sinned. He was damned on the cross for those three hours so that you will never be damned if you repent and trust in him. And he was damned on the cross and rose from the dead to give you his infinite power so that you can correct righteously. So that you can correct with authentic clarity and restorative judgment and strategic love. He empowers you for that. So here's my final call to you. Brothers and sisters, when you're correcting others, commune with God. Worship God in your correction. God wants you near to Him. If you don't commune with God when you're correcting, you will be given to graceless judgment, a shrinking soul, and weakened and shallow friendships. You'll have shallow friendships because you could never tell each other the truth because then they might get mad and stop being your friend, right? So you got to keep it shallow to keep it peaceful. You want that in your life? A bunch of shallow friendships all around you? Or if you do commune with God in correction, you will have grace-shaped judgment and hope. You will have meaningful friendships with people where you can actually speak honestly and protect each other with the truth. And you'll have an expanding joy in your soul as you share joy with God as you correct others. So going back to that beginning story about me at college, seeing these guys cheating on their tests. God gave me the grace that day against my desires. <laughs> he gave me the grace to actually speak to them. 
about their cheating on their homework, which seems so small in college of all places, right? I didn't want to do it. I say that to my shame. It's my own guilt. I did not want to do it. But by God's grace, I don't regret I did it either because God was communing with me and he was meeting me there and he was shaping me to be the man, the neighbor, the husband, the father, the pastor, the church member that I'm supposed to be. Situation by situation, correction by correction, failure by failure. He's shaping us every single occasion. Brothers and sisters, God is inviting you to enjoy him when he's calling you to correct others righteously. Don't deny that invitation. Receive it gladly and commune with him. Let's pray.